On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, filling in again today. Four years ago, right around now, Hamilton was partially hosting the Pan Am Games. What is the legacy of the Pan Am Games? And depending on how we define that legacy, what does that mean for a bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games? Rick Zamperin will join and chat about that. And in the new world where apartments and condos are getting smaller because in urban areas it's expensive. They're making them smaller. They're jamming more in there. The thing that is being sacrificed in many of these places is the kitchen. A lot of places don't have a full kitchen anymore, and they certainly don't have a sitting area. What do we lose, if anything, diet-wise, family-wise, social-wise? What do we lose if the kitchen eventually becomes just another room in the house or not even that? And later in the show, we're going to talk beer, and Halloween. Do you know that somebody, a group, a lot of people, in fact, a huge petition is out there now wanting Halloween, the day of Halloween to be changed. People want Halloween on a different day. What day? Well, we'll tell you when we get to it and we'll tell you why they want to change it. It's not, it's not just because they're party poopers. In fact, I think it's the opposite. They want to party more. Stick around. We'll talk about all of it. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Four years ago, This time, we would have just wrapped up the Pan Am Games in Toronto and here in Hamilton. Do you remember that? Now, oh yeah. Okay, now I remember. Yes, I remember hearing something about that. Some of you went to some stuff. These games go on every four years, of course. Pan Am Games do like the Olympics. But that means something else. That means the Pan Am Games are on right now. Now, same people who had their hands up or who honked their horn. How many of you knew the Pan Am Games were being contested as we speak in Lima, Peru? Mm-hmm. Thought so. Let me bring in Rick Zamperin, who, um, well, he knows his way around the playing field and the international games and all the rest from CHML here. Uh, did you know the P- Pan Am games were currently going on in Lima, Peru? I only knew partly by accident when I, <laughs> you know, scrolling through my Twitter and news feeds and uh, discovering that, hey, Canada's doing quite well at the Pan Am games in Peru. But otherwise, I mean, there hasn't been a lot of publicity about the games. Can you, I don't want to put you on the spot and, uh, well, can you name one person who is competing there for Canada? No, sorry. No, no. I, and look, <laughs> I, I would say that if we went down to the street corner and did a survey yeah. and asked a thousand people, 950 of them would not even know the games were on. Wow, that's my, well, yeah, I was going to say that's pretty generous if you think 50 people know an athlete, but yeah. And, to, of, to the 50, and of the 50 who knew the games were on, <laughs> maybe one or two Probably. might know somebody. And that, I, you know, I, I, I'm fearful that's disrespectful to the athletes who are there yeah. because it probably is. That's not the intent. It's, it's not the Olympics. Right. And if it's not the Olympics, people yeah. seem to go, tell me when the Olympics are on. Even when it is the Olympics, you probably couldn't name an athlete in an individual kind of sport, you know, aside from hockey or, you know, some of the sports where we know pro athletes from North America are participating in. Soccer would probably be in that category too. But, you know, downhill skiing or, um, you know, skeleton, uh, alpine skiing, any of these kind of non-traditional sports that we usually watch on TV, you probably couldn't name a lot of the athletes. So even at Olympic time, unless that athlete does something amazing or not so amazing. Or goes into the games as one of the, like Andre like de Grasse, people bear, would know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah, not a lot of these athletes. And 
you know, there's a few hundred of them representing our country at, at Olympic Games. Not many of them are known unless they achieve greatness. But it was always my understanding, and this is this is why I raised this today for a couple of reasons. It was always my understanding that when we host the games, and Hamilton was a co-host, we didn't single-handedly host. Right. It was at Toronto, mostly at the or largely at the X, but it was in this area. That once you've hosted, this is supposed to make you a diehard, lifelong fan of these games. You're now aware of it. You've seen the greatness of it and all the rest. Everyone's supposed to go, oh, I can't wait for the next time. Right. How has, and I'm assuming, because I've heard not one person say a word about Pan Am games. How have we gotten to where we are, where it just, we've had it and it didn't have any kind of friction, didn't right. have any kind of cling at all. Really, apart from the stadium, that, that I think that's all we have, other than maybe a few scant memories here and there for, you know, people who attended some of the soccer games here. Uh, you know, if they watched the Canadian men's and women's teams in action at Tim Hortons Field, or I, I think at the time it was the CIBC Pan Am Game Stadium or whatever they called it. Um, so if you went to the games, you may have a memory of it if there was a highlight uh, or if you had a family member or a good friend that was on the team or associated with the team. But otherwise, really, I mean, we didn't get the velodrome, which was a hot topic at the time. Went to Milton. I don't think we had the Olympic pool or at least still have the Olympic pool, which I think I know McMaster is still tra- striving for. I think that was part of it, which ultimately I think went to Mississauga uh, or Toronto. Um there was supposed to be stuff at first Ontario Center. Yeah. Like nothing. There was supposed to be like badminton or volleyball or something, yeah. and that never came. Aside from hosting the soccer, really, and getting a new stadium, I mean, that's that's really the only memories I think most Hamiltonians have of the Pan Am Games being here. Which is stunning when you consider that the fight for the Pan Am Games and the stadium. I mean, how long did the stadium? <laughs> I mean, oh, I don't want to revisit that whole yeah. thing, but well, I mean, that was it a few was, years. It was years of talking about this leading up to it, and generally, when you have that much hype. Is hype the right word? That much prep, that much lead time of discussion, you would yeah. go, oh, it's going to be a big deal. And I don't know what percentage of Hamilton participated in any way in the Pan Am Games, but I would say ten, under 10%. I was going to say slim to none, really. Under I mean, 10. unless you volunteered at the venue, um, you know, maybe, you know, one of the shuttle people who shuttled, you know, some of the uh, participants to and from the stadium in, in downtown hotels. I mean, apart from that, really, I don't, I don't think the... The um, the involvement was there from a community aspect. Would it have been different if we'd had the velodrome, if we'd had the pool, if we'd had the stuff going on, if it had been a much more Toronto and Hamilton yeah. game split down the middle? I think the pool for sure, because especially if it's at Mac, you know, those athletes are using it, people at Mac are using it, the community can use it. The velodrome, I think, is pretty niche. Unless you're a cyclist and a high, you know, elite cyclist, you're probably not using that facility. Uh, and that eventually went to Milton, didn't mm-hmm. it? Are, are people in Milton actually going to the velodrome and cycling around? I don't, I don't know, know if they can. I don't know that it's a heavily used by the public like thing, a public facility, yeah. but I think there's a lot of cyclists from the area who go there right. to train. Which is, you so know, it's a national. Of a lot of these, yeah. The purpose of a lot of these venues, like, you know, velodrome is a, is a, is a key venue if you want to get into cycling and be, you know, an Olympian or a Pan Am Games participant or whatever the case, or, or win World Cup medals, you know, whatever the case is, you know, that's an important venue to have. And that's the legacy that that venue will have. At Tim Hortons Field, apart from hosting the soccer games, you know, what's the legacy other than the Tiger Cats get to use it and we have a few concerts? Well, and if we poo-poo the velodrome and a lot of people will go, thank goodness we didn't get the velodrome. Okay, that's fine. But I mean, we are always happy when our bobsledders win medals or whatever right. else. Uh, very few people are using the Calgary bobsleigh track, except for 
Olympic quality bobsled. You don't have a lot of right. public people saying, hey, I'm going to rent a bobsled <laughs> hey, today bobsled this weekend. and rip it down there at 130 <laughs> kilometers an hour and slide on my head for a while. That would be fun. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I, I, I've talked to Jesse Lumsden about sliding halfway down a bobsled <laughs> track so on fun. his head. Less fun than yeah. you would think. Uh, <laughs> really is. It's skeleton without the sled. Thank goodness they wear helmets. You'd be yeah. grinding your head right down to the brain. I'm kind of surprised they don't wear a little more padding. You know, I know they want to be sleek and light, but... And aerodynamic, but still, I mean, see, knowing, you get jostled around there. Knowing some of the folks in international sports, remember when, uh, what was his name, who used to be the head of FIFA? Um, Sepp Blatter? Sepp Blatter, when he said women should wear tight <laughs> hot pants in yes. soccer. I'm thinking, oh, you know, you got some of those people who want to bo- boost up the ratings. Yeah. I'm thinking they say, bobsleigh, hey, let's drop the skinny outfits. Let's just wear bathing suits. <laughs> Speedos. Let's just, let's wow. expose the bodies. Let's drive up the ratings. But... <laughs> But to go back to it, by the way, this is not what we, we were going really to be talking about. We really got on a tangent about. there. <laughs> we're on to something. Sep, give us a call. Yes, here we go. The, the, the stadium is the then only existing bit of legacy. Because, I mean, you could have emotional legacy and physical legacy. I don't know that there's an emotional legacy. There is a, that, that is what's left. It's the physical legacy of the yeah. Pan Am Games. I, uh, I printed out the... I think this is the most latest stadium precinct update. It is dated 2015. They they may have updated it since then, you know, four years ago. But the stadium precinct is not just the stadium. It's Lottridge to Gage, the tracks to King, um, Scott Park obviously in there. So Bernie Morelli Center is part of this legacy project. We've seen that flourish. Um, Brian Timmis Field has kind of evaporated. That was supposed to go to the Dominion Glass Mm -hmm. area, which is still a pseudo-parking lot. For Ticats games. And still remains in some sort of limbo. Yes. I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. Yes. And the other key portion of it, beyond road repair and streetscaping and all that, is the uh, new school, the Bernie Custis uh, school that's been built. So that really, that trifecta component is is the legacy of the games. Uh, but again, more so, the, the stadium is, is the big key. So was it worth it for Hamilton? Ultimately, if the stadium is what is left... Yeah. In, on balance, do you say, you know what, okay, that was uh, that was worth it for us? From a monetary standpoint, I think yes. Although, A, I don't recall how much we actually spent to host the games. I don't think it was a lot. But for the amount of money that we ultimately got from the provincial and federal governments to build the stadium, and again, it's not a billion-dollar facility, but still, they paid for more than half of that uh, facility. I think it was well worth it because... You know, the alternative was if we didn't get the games, now we'd have to dip in, I think, to more of the provincial or the uh, municipal coffers to pay for that facility. I still think the federal and provincial governments would have come to the table, but it would have been under very different circumstances because this venue is not going to be hosting a Pan Am Games. The, I agree with you. The downside is that when you just talk about the stadium precinct, yes, the Bernie Morelli Center has gone up, and yes, the Bernie Custis School has gone up on Bernie Filoni Way. There's a lot of Bernies around there. Yeah. That should be, I don't know why we <laughs> haven't come up with a better name for that area. The, the like, Bernieville. 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 That's we have Wrigleyville outside Wrigley Stadium. Go. Bernieville. That's what it should be called. <laughs> but the rest of the quote, quote, precinct, nothing has it, happened. Yeah, homes. Parking lots, uh, variety stores. Like, wasn't there supposed to be all kinds of spin-off stuff? Restaurants were going to pop yeah. up and all of a sudden, there's... Nothing. 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 I mean, there may have been a new restaurant here and there, but I mean, I can't name a new one that's in that area. They might be tucked away somewhere, but there isn't a... Bob Subs or something. <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> yeah, Manny's Burrito House. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> it, it, hasn't, it hasn't had the spin-off benefit is what we're saying. Correct. That, uh, that Not, you even would... Not even close. Not even close. Not even close. Because again, it was supposed to be the, the 
ignition to a huge rebuild of that area. Yeah, I think it was supposed to, I think the theory was, or the imagination behind it was that it was going to revitalize this portion of the city, uh, apart from just having some homes there. It was going to be, you know, entertainment type district where, as you mentioned, restaurants, I don't know, maybe a hotel would have gone there eventually sometime down the road, a new Scott Park. Um, so are you promoting a massive expropriation project to take all the houses of the like three or 400 homeowners in that yeah. area and, and call Rick, call Rick Zamperin if you want. Make if, it into a true Bernieville. <laughs> no, no one <laughs> is. Roller pro- coaster in the whole bit. No one has proposed that. If you live no. in that area, we are not actually proposing they take your homes no. away. Don't worry. And you know what? It's a great, it's a great little community with the homes and, in that area. It's just that, yeah, I think we were, I don't know if promised is the word, but at least, at least led to believe that there was going to be more than just a stadium and a high school and a rec center. So the reason, part of the reason we bring this up is to look back on that one, but there's also a look forward on this because we know that right now, uh, city council with a local group is exploring the idea of hosting the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Now mm-hmm. the difference would be, and this is only my understanding and I stand to be corrected by those behind it, but my understanding is this would be primarily, if not exclusively, a Hamilton game. So right. everything would be here. Which how is how much, much larger than just soccer. How obviously. different would that make it as far as legacy, first of all? That's a good question because now you're, instead of just one sport, there's almost 40 sports. Uh, everything from wrestling to rowing to... Uh, soccer, obviously, and, and baseball, all these other sports. Um, so it's a, it's a much more mammoth project than just hosting one event. From a legacy standpoint, if there are new venues to be built, and Lima, Peru, you know, almost half their budget went to new venues, or sports infrastructure, as they call it, I think it could be massive, depending on what those new venues are. So is it an Olympic-sized pool? Is it, uh, I doubt we'd have a, a velodrome. They'd probably just shuttle them off to Milton. But I think it could be massive for this city. The other side of it is, who's going to pay for it? Are we going to get that provincial and federal investment again? Probably, but we're going to have to dip into our pockets as well. Well, they have said that they have a business model that will see most of the money, as I understand. And again, right. my, I can be corrected on this, but much slash most of the money would be coming in from private sector or from raising funds somewhere beyond, that they're not going to be tapping the city yeah. and everyone else publicly for... And that's great, but... You know, just think of baseball. Are they going to play at Bernie Arbor Stadium? I mean, that's one facility that they could use. But beyond that, where else are they going to go? I mean, they'd have to go to other... Burlington. Yeah, other cities. It's a... See, here's the thing. Hamilton does have a reasonable number of athletic facilities. The challenge is many of them need to be fixed up. And if even if you didn't have all new facilities... To me, if you can find largely private, largely private sector money and you can just revitalize and modernize a mm-hmm. lot of our facilities to get them up to current standards, because I mean, Bernie Arbor Stadium right now, uh, it's functional, yeah, but I don't think anyone's going to say it's much more than that. It, it's not Pan Am or Commonwealth Games quality. But if we have a bunch of these facilities, first Ontario Center, now I don't, I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the, the golden chalice. Right? Yeah. That would be the thing that you're trying to get fixed if you're the city of Hamilton. How do we get a new stadium, a new arena or a fixed up arena? But if you can find largely private sector money and sponsorship deals and everything else that can update and fix all those, I, I think a lot of people would say, yeah. 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 hundred percent. I mean, if the private sector is going to come on board and spend tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on what facilities they build, 
Um, yeah, I'm all for it. I, I think the excitement level in the city would be much larger than just hosting soccer at the Pan Am Games. And do you see this is this is the other issue that I wonder about is the 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 pro the the physical stuff would be great, mm-hmm. but can, but can you get people behind the it? Buzz. The buzz. Can you get the buzz? Can you get people to be really energized yeah. about a Commonwealth Games? See, we had the World Road Cycling Championships in what two thousand three? Yes. Pan Am Games. Good memory. Yes. Five years ago. Um, Grey Cup's coming in a couple of years. So these singular type of events have been big. The ripple effect from a community buzz standpoint hasn't been gargantuan. A Commonwealth Games, I think, is it, it, it's a much more upper echelon kind of feeling because you have so many other, you know, so many more sports. Um, th- that's to be decided, I think. Depending I think on the interest level of, you know, the people here. And there's going to be a lot of people visiting the city. Uh, so that might contribute to it. That might contribute to a lot of frustrations in the city with traffic and the like. I think a lot, we're going to see a lot. We're going to get a real hint about this from the Grey Cup next year. Yes. There are obviously people who are going to be very excited about the Grey Cup. But if the Grey Cup celebration is confined essentially to a very, very small area of the city, and right. as soon as you leave that area, there is no indication and no buzz that the Grey Cup is going on, that's not a great sign. You need to have this feeling throughout the yeah. city that something is happening. The Grey Cup is more than just the game. It's it's a week-long festival. There's awards that are handed out. There's, uh, you know, the, the commissioner uh, holds his, uh, you know, holds court for a day. Uh, there's always things to see and do every single night. You know, players from not only the participating teams, but other teams, you know, come to the city to represent their franchises. Um, so that'll be, I think, a true test to how this city rallies around a unique and, you know, iconic event here in Canada. We're not Toronto. We're very different from Toronto, but you were probably down in Toronto for the 100th Grey Cup five or six years ago. Calgary and the Argos were in that. That's right. And if you were down there, there were things set up along Front Street right up to Rogers Centre. But as soon as you went to King Street. Yeah, it was over. <laughs> there was, you would never have known in the city yeah. of Toronto that there was a Grey Cup festival or Grey Cup going on. It was, it was just there and mm-hmm. that was it. I don't think Hamilton can, I don't think that can be the case here. Okay. I, I don't, if that's the case here where it's just, as soon as you step away from the, the carnival or whatever else, mm-hmm. if there's no sense, that would be a bad sign. I can almost guarantee, and they might have a different plan because they're doing things a little differently, the, the Hamilton Grey Cup Organizing Committee, is that most of it will be downtown. When I say most of it, you know, Edmonton Eskimos hold their, you know, little venue here and the stamps will be at this venue, but most of it, I think, will be centered in the core of the city. It would be nice if, you know, one team picked Ancaster and one was in Dundas and one was on the mountain and one was downtown to kind of spread the love, but then again, you're asking people to travel to different parts of the city. Now, you're not traveling half an hour away, but still you're asking people to get into Ubers and taxis and cars and buses and stuff. And I don't even mean necessarily that, although it's an interesting idea. I just mean that if it's downtown... It's nowhere else. If you're living in Dundas or you're on the mountain or you're in the East End, are you and your neighbors even mentioning, hey, are you going down to part of... Not even physically to have something there, just the feeling that there's something going on in your city. Yeah. Because again, in Toronto... When you hit King Street, no one even knew the Grey Cup yeah. was there. There was no chatter. That's that's what you need to make these things, I think, go. And the opposite effect, too, is if you're not a fan and you're, you have no interest in going to any Grey Cup-related uh, venues uh, or events, you're going to stay away from them. So you're not going to go to downtown. So I think those other downtown facilities, restaurants, whatever, are going to be impacted somewhat. It's going to be more positive than negative, but... Uh, We will see. Uh, Hamilton has been described as, quote, a real contender to host the 2030 Commonwealth Games 
I hope that if that happens, uh, as I said, A, that it's a lot that they're able to come through with the private money and B, that four years after those are over, we have more buzz and more warm, fuzzy feelings apparently than we are feeling about the Pan Am games (laughs) four years later right now. Uh, Rick Zamperin, thanks for doing this. Anytime. We'll take a break. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. For, I was going to say generations, I think forever. I mean, I think as far as you go back in time, the kitchen or the eating place in a family dwelling has been the centerpiece of most homes. It's where people gather. It's where if you have a party, people seem to congregate. It's where families have dinner together. It's where mom, traditionally mom, could be dad, but traditionally mom, has cooked for her family. It's if you're going to sell your house, if you're going to upgrade your house, is what real estate agents say, put your money into the kitchen or the bathroom. That's what's going to, that's the place. That's what's going to make your house have value because people want to gather in the kitchen. It's the centerpiece. Well, things are changing apparently. Because of the cost of homes and condos and limited space, especially in really urban areas in big, big cities, prices of these condos and apartments have gone through the roof. Sizes of these condos and apartments have shrunk. And one of the things that apparently is being squeezed in a lot of these, if we have to find something that we are going to be taking out, you got to sleep somewhere, you got to have a bed, got to have some closets or something, got to have a desk. The thing that seems to be losing the battle here is the kitchen. There are a lot of places now that are, you can move in, but it doesn't have a complete kitchen, may not have an oven, certainly doesn't have a sitting area. You might have a counter. You certainly will have a sink. You might have a microwave and a little bar fridge or something, but that's about it. What does this mean? Because this certainly, you would think, has to have some kind of impact on the way we do life compared to what we have been over the years. Rosie Schwartz is a registered dietitian. She's the national bestseller of The Enlightened Eater. She joins us now. Rosie, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, you know, as I think about this and as I was introducing it, this is, if, if this extends, if this goes on, this is a seismic change in how we live. It's a very troubling one, Scott. I mean, if we don't have the ability to prepare meals, then our our health is going to suffer. Well, our health, our socializing, our family, I mean, people can point to all these different things and say these are all areas that are centered around the kitchen of a typical home. Absolutely. I mean, even when you look at um, sort of family meals, it's, it's not just physical health, but emotional health in terms of, as you say, social. I mean, the new food guide even um, has brought in for the first time, it talks about eating with others. You're correct. I forgot that. That's true. And and it prioritizes that as something that you need to be doing for your health, for your health. It doesn't, it doesn't just say for, for fun. It says it for your health. Absolutely. Now, one of the problems is though, is that a lot of a lot of millennials have not learned how to how to prepare food, and so people think, well, that's that's something that they don't need to have that skill. And in fact, there's there's a a real call for bringing back courses like home ec um, and and food literacy back into high schools, so that students are are given the life skills to move ahead. But Rosie, you know what? Look, there is certainly, I would think, I would argue that you're correct, that there's certainly a place for that. But 
In 2019, if you were to tell kids in high school we want you to take home ec, it sounds hopelessly old-fashioned. It would be, I, I think it would be really hard to convince kids this is something they really want to do. Well, I think the name, you're right, the name, the name has to be sexy. So maybe something like food literacy, for example, that might appeal more to, to you know, students looking at things like food in the environment, um, food and health, where does our food come from? And, and so if, if, if maybe something like food literacy were, were taught, mm. then, then maybe students would think that that was something that, you know, they should be taking. We'll call it the Gordon Ramsay cooking course, and we'll allow the students to scream obscenities at each other while they're <laughs> cooking, and they'll line up to take this course. Well, maybe, but that'll be, that'll be a short time. But, but I think we, we need to know about food. We need to know where does our food come from? How does our food affect our health? How does our food affect, and that's physical and emotional, how does it affect, affect the environment? I mean, we can't just say it doesn't have any effect on our lives. We can't depend on others to provide our nourishment. I want to get to all that stuff you just said, but let's back up for just a second to where this starts, because if we are now seeing condos, apartments, even in some cases, homes that are cutting back on the space of the kitchen, we know with everything we do in our life, Rosie, we are willing to pay for the things we prioritize. If we believe strongly that something is important to us, if you have the money, people are willing to pay for that. If you feel that a really nice car is important, you will pass on other things and you will pay the money for a nice car. Same with clothes, same with whatever. This seems to me to be some kind of indicator that cooking is something that we are simply not prioritizing these days, at least many people. Absolutely. And as a result, we're eating half of our our calories are coming from ultra-processed foods, convenience foods, and as a result, the research is showing it's contributing to obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and I think that, that people need to also realize that getting those skills, it doesn't have to be time-consuming. You can put a delicious-tasting meal um, on the table, and yes, Maybe a table would be a good idea. <laughs> um, but you can do that in 15 to 20 minutes. It, but it takes, it, takes those, it takes some skills to be able to do that. But if we're depending on, on takeout, if we're depending on you know, food delivery, food, you know, all these other, other ways of getting food, um, I think it's, it's very much due to the fact that, that the, the skills aren't there. So and they and it's something that I think that we need to show um, that it doesn't have to be difficult, and it's certainly a lot cheaper mm. to um, to prepare your own food. So is this a case of not being interested in cooking, or is this a case of people thinking they're too busy to cook? They come home from work and they're hungry, and I want to eat now. I don't want to have to sit down and figure out and prepare a meal for half an hour. Why? Why do you believe? that we are, or some people are stepping away from this? What's the impetus? I think not having the skills is a big one. And thinking that, um, that in order to develop the skills um, to eat food that you love, um, that it takes a lot of time. Intimidating. And, yeah, exactly. And, and I know when I, when I counsel individuals about about preparing food, and I talk to them about simple things to make, 
but they sound delicious, then I often find that people say to me, I think I'll go shopping on my way home. I'm going to try this. And so people think that um, that delicious food is to 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 make it yourself is time consuming and expensive, and it doesn't have to be. And we have so many products available now. Um, you could do things like you know frozen vegetables, and there are things like prepared broths, for example. But you can you can have a delicious. Um, tasting chili on the table if you want vegetarian or vegan or if you want meat. Um, you can do all these things in a short time, but it's number one being organized. So the, the wrong time, Scott, to, to decide what you're going to eat for dinner is when you get home from work. So, I mean, that's that's where people go wrong. One of the things that I suggest to people is, you know, something like a menu. And it doesn't have to be something that is um that you you know you don't deviate from but if you know that on certain days you're going to prepare certain foods you've got it in your pantry or you've got it in your fridge and um you can use a a grocery delivery service if you don't want to spend the time doing that but then you can you can cook something really quickly and have a delicious dish but people need to know that they're going to be eating something delicious and it doesn't take a lot of work you bring up a really interesting point because about, about the wrong time to do this is when you're on your way home. I, I have been told many times by my wife that if I go to the grocery store ever while I'm hungry, uh, it's a menace. It's a horrible idea because I will grab everything that suddenly looks good that is probably bad for me, but because I'm starving to death, I'll pick it. You got to go to the grocery store when you're absolutely so full you can't even think about food and then you probably shop smart. And have energy. The other thing is, is that if you're not eating well during the day, if you're too busy working and you don't stop to have a, a balanced lunch, to have some snacks, if you're not fueled up, then you're just too tired mm. to even think about yeah. what to eat or or start preparing something. So so it's it's a whole it's a whole cycle that happens. Rosie, the suggestion seems to be that the story we're talking about, the fact that these kitchens are disappearing or shrinking, seems to be a, right now anyway, a, a, a largely an urban thing. When you're living in a city, you're probably a young professional or a young person starting out maybe living by yourself. But I got to believe that if that's what you become accustomed to early in your life, and you think, oh, I'm either too busy or whatever else. When you, if you get married, if you go off and have kids, when you have kids, if you think that you're going to start cooking, now that you're really busy with a kid or two running around, the chances of you picking it up becomes even less, I would think. Absolutely. I know that when, when we bought our home, we looked for a place where the kitchen would be the gathering place. When I was a kid and I came home, my parents worked, but even then when when meals were being prepared, we sat in the kitchen. We talked, you know, we talked as a family. Now you don't there you know, there's not a lot of space sometimes in kitchens to do that. But even preparing food together, um, it makes such a difference. Kids who are involved in preparing food are much more likely to eat what what they have prepared than if it if it if the parent is preparing the food alone the most interesting irony of this whole story that has that strikes me is that 
it's the, the, the explanation given is that a lot of people can't afford a big enough apartment or big enough condo. They're very expensive. So in order to live, I can't afford it because, so I have to go and eat out. I can't afford a kitchen. I can't afford the space. So I have to go and get my food elsewhere. When in fact, if you, you could also take the position, if I don't eat out, I could afford enough money to have a bigger apartment. It, it, it seems to be a cycle, an irony, whatever you want to call it. I agree. I mean, if you look at even the price of coffee, if you're getting a specialty coffee drink and you're buying, I mean, sometimes in some cases, though, I have to say that if you're buying fast food, sometimes it's it's really cheap. But if you're going to um, be eating fast food all the time, um, then what's happening with your health? And and I think you're right. If you haven't been cooking and you don't have any cooking facilities and you have a family, um, then your kids are not going to learn how to cook either. And that's part of what's been happening. And and so we need we need to change things. So starting with schools, putting food literacy on on the curriculum, um, having people think that cooking can be a pleasure, but it doesn't have to be time-consuming or expensive, but it should be delicious. And I don't even know that this is a fast food issue, because I really believe that the people who are going to eat fast food all the time are going to eat fast food all the time, whether they have a kitchen or not. There are just people who that is their diet. It's the people who want to eat healthy, but don't have the facilities perhaps to eat healthy. And the challenge with that, as you just pointed out, is it's really hard to eat healthy at a restaurant for not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and if you take that money over one year, I mean, you put that towards having some kind of cooking facility, it, it, it really would pay for it. So that, that's the, I mean, clearly there's the diet issue and, and now the positive side, I suppose, is that we help the economy because there's going to be a million different, either, as you say, grocery shopping things or the, uh, what do you call it when they drop off the ready-made meal that you just have to throw in the fry pan, the, right. uh, or, you know, or deliver meal kits or delivery right to your door. I mean, all those companies, the restaurants, they're all loving this, I would assume. I mean, this is great for them. I think so, but I think, I think a big, a big issue is sort of knowing kinds of things to make. Um, as I said, when I, when, I, when I talk to people and I say, how about, you know, this kind of pasta dish, for example, and, and I tell them how to make it, and they go, well, that's not hard. Mm. And so if, if, kids, if kids learn how to cook, then they become young adults who want to eat delicious food that they have prepared. So that's, it goes back to, um, you know, it goes back to kids, it goes back to growing up and understanding food. And if you know nothing about food, then yes, you want to pick up the phone or, or go online, more likely, and just order something. But if you know how to prepare it, um, then even if you have a tiny kitchen, you can make some delicious food, but you have to, you have to want to, and you have to have the skills to do it. Let's go back just for a second. We only have a minute or so left here, but to the very beginning, because I do wonder if, if we lose the kitchen from the family home or apartment or again, whatever, uh, are we merely moving our socializing to another area and everything else stays the same? Or is it in your mind going to really change the family dynamic? I think it will change the family dynamic. I mean, if people 
right now if if single people um are they don't have a kitchen they're not always going to be going out with friends they they may be ordering in sitting at their computer or on their device and eating at the same time that they're working and we need to take the time to to savor our meals to to relax to enjoy them and that's part of part of good health and i think that a lot of a lot of people who don't have the space for the kitchen and are ordering in are are not even taking the time to to eat um separately from from doing work or watching tv or or you know reading or who knows what um but we need to take the time to nourish ourselves physically and emotionally. And you know what I find so ironic is that you talk about watching TV. I'm betting that some of the people while they're sitting there eating, there are more cooking shows on TV right now and popular cooking shows than probably there's ever been before. Once upon a time, it was Julia Child and Juan Can, Juan Can Cook or whatever his name was. Uh, and, and the, the galloping gourmet. And now, I mean, you could watch cooking shows 24 hours a day. They do very, very well. I would have thought that would have, anyone watching that would say, man, I got to try that. It seems to be just a, a spectator sport now, as opposed to a doing thing. Well, some of the cooking shows, part of the problem is, is that they're all these competitions mm. and people are making fancy, fancy food or fancy dishes that look unbelievably beautiful. Um, and so if you don't have the skills and you're watching it, it might be interesting to watch, but it's not giving you the basics and it's not giving you it's not tempting you to go out shopping and buy buy some good food. It's showing you how you can make a fancy dish and use the tweezers to to plate it so that it's absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. And those who don't do it absolutely perfectly get berated beyond <laughs> All measure of re- so so I don't want to touch it I I can't do that uh, Rosie Schwartz registered dietitian national bestseller of the Enlightened Eater love having you on thanks for doing this Rosie my pleasure Scott you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML there is a new Canadian holiday that is going to be celebrated October the 9th the last Wednesday before Thanksgiving has now been declared Canadian Beer Day mm-hmm you're just sort of perking up now. Yeah. Canadian beer day. I know you're going to like that one. Now it isn't exactly an official holiday. Not yet. Hasn't been declared a statutory holiday yet. Although, as I said, last hour, some politician in election season hears about this and goes, Hmm, do we have a statutory holiday in October? I don't think so. Hmm. Here's remember family day won Dalton McGinty in election here in Ontario, maybe beer day as a national stay home and drink beer day will work. But anyway, uh, let me bring in Brittany Burden, who's the Director of Communications Communications and Engagement with Beer Canada. Brittany, thanks for doing this today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, you're more than welcome. I do have one obvious question, though. Do we need to declare Beer Day for people to drink beer in this country? <laughs> I mean, depends who you ask. You could just take the day off if you were so inclined. Or call it sort of any day that ends in Y and drink beer. Sure. Sure, all in responsible celebration. Well, of course, of course. But yes, I think many people consider every day a Canadian beer day. (laughs) We certainly do here at Beer Canada. (laughs) 
What about now? I mean, look, it's a fun thing. It's a it's a it's a good idea. It is. Uh, it's something I'm sure that will get lots of traction because you know people, if they needed an excuse to drink more beer, now they've got one. But does mm-hmm. our, does the national beer industry in Canada seriously does it need promoting or is it something that it needs a boost or is it doing just fine? Sure. So um, we think so. We are the trade association that represents brewers at the federal level. Um, although there has been a huge boom in the number of breweries uh, starting in Canada, there's about 995 across the country now with around 300 in Ontario alone. Wow. The domestic beer sector is not in a healthy state sales-wise. Really? So per capita, yeah, per, per capita consumption is down. And despite the beer industry's economic impact, the beer industry faces a lot of challenges, including taxes and higher input costs. So it's very competitive out there. We think brewers need many reasons to come together and realize that they have more in common than they think. So that's why we're launching this Canadian Beer Day. See, I would have thought that with all the, you mentioned them like microbreweries and stuff, they're popping up everywhere. It seems every week, it seems we're hearing about another microbrewery. I, I would have yeah. assumed then that the beer industry was very healthy. If this many people are wanting to dive into it. And like, I, I can't imagine it's cheap to start one. You've got to put in a reasonable investment. It would have seemed you're only doing this. If there is a market, a big market. You would think, um, I know Hamilton's quite lucky. You guys have quite a few craft, uh, small breweries there. Does it does it impact on the beer industry that it seems that people are um, making healthier choices in some cases? I mean, you can read a magazine article all the time saying, "Hey, if you want to get do your one year of don't drink or whatever else." I mean, these things all they all have good they're all good ideas, I suppose, health wise, but they all do go to the beer industry's bottom line. For sure, and you can see brewers responding to that even now. Um, one of the newest markets is lighter and even non-alcoholic beer offerings. So the brewers are responding to those changing consumer tastes. The uh, Beer Canada, apparently, and again, I, uh, you're, you're the chairman of Beer Canada, says the beer economy right now in Canada provides $13.6 billion annually to our national GDP. That's an enormous amount of money. I could not, I couldn't have guessed <laughs> that it's that big. That's, an, that's a huge amount of money. Yes, so that's why we're part of why we're doing this day. We're hoping to raise awareness of just how impactful the beer industry is. There's 149,000 brewery jobs with a labor income estimated at $5.3 billion. Yeah, we generate huge amounts of revenue for the government. The beer industry in Canada actually has three times the economic impact of wine and spirits industries combined. So what are you hoping then? Brittany, that people are going to do on Canadian Beer Day? I mean, I, I suppose it's maybe obvious, but what are you hoping people are going to do on Canadian Beer Day? Um, spread, spread the word. You know, uh, most if you're lucky, you have a favorite local brewery. All you really need to do is, is go with a friend or two or, or be at home and enjoy a Canadian brew. Um, there's so many delicious styles brewed here in Canada and spread the word on social media and maybe even call your elected official. It's going to be right before the election. So why not call them up, tell them what you're drinking and remind them why beer is so important to the community, 
into the country. That's what the politicians are going to want to have, is phone calls from people who have just shotgunned a 12-pack <laughs> of Molson in the basement going, more beer, more beer. Ah, well, I, I know what you mean. Uh, is it enough to stay home and just drink a 12-pack and say, I've celebrated? I, I personally would recommend you go out to your local brewery or you pick <laughs> up beer at your favorite store. But if you prefer to drink at home, if that's where you would like to, to enjoy something responsibly, go for it. Brittany Burden, Director of Communications and Engagement for Beer Canada. Appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you. Cheers. Happy Canadian Beer Day. Absolutely. October the 9th, the last Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We'll see how that one catches on. But as I say, I'm sure that there are people who will be more than happy to participate. More than in some holidays, for sure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Halloween is on a Thursday this week. Scott Thompson Show, by the way, Scott Radley here. Uh, Halloween is on a Thursday this week, and you know what that means. Thousands and thousands and thousands of sugar-comed children are going to be calling in sick to school on Friday. There's going to be nobody at school on the following Friday. Their hypoglycemic bodies are going to be re- reacting and trying to get back to some sort of normal balance. And mom and dad are going to be saying, ah, just sleep in. Or maybe it's just mom and dad who ate all the candy and want to sleep in. Anyway, uh, not everybody, as a result, loves the idea of a midweek Halloween. So a petition that was started a little while ago to permanently move Halloween to the final Saturday of October every year. Let's move it to the final Saturday of October. doesn't matter what the date on the calendar is. Final Saturday of of October, that's going to be Halloween. They've already got over 137,000 signatures on this online petition. And because of this, Snickers, the candy bar company, has now offered a million chocolate bars for free if this is made a thing, if the federal, if the U.S. federal government were to declare this is going to be the case rather than October the 31st. Let me bring in Alyssa Freeman, who is a public relations consultant. She writes for Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily Call. Alyssa, thanks for doing this today. Hey, no problem. Anything to talk about candy. Well, you know, so what's wrong with Halloween on October 31st? It's easy to remember. You know, we all did it as kids. We all survived. For the most part, we all survived. What's wrong with just keeping well enough alone? Well, here's the thing. You know, the candy bar situation, the candy bar industry is very, very, very competitive. And sometimes you need to do something to break out and just get people thinking about your product again. And when you you can do it based on the usual factors. You can talk about taste. You can talk about how, uh, you know, the chocolate and the and and that. But what if you actually turned it on its head? What if you actually did something that was so out of the box or out of the candy wrapper that really had people focusing on your product. And that's exactly what Snickers has done with this notion of changing a midweek Halloween to something that is easier, quite frankly, for parents on the weekend. So the PR professional is given a thumbs up to this idea. You know what? I'm giving a thumbs up to the notion and the concept of this. To the concept. That's, that's what, what I meant. That, yes. That's what I'm giving the thumbs up to. And so I actually went to the, the petition before we went on, and they needed 150,000 signatures. And I think that they were practically up to about 143,000. So they're, they're definitely going to close in on that. And think about a news cycle, right, Scott? A news cycle can last you one hour, two hours. If it's a great story, maybe it's 24 hours. This story will probably last 48 hours because what they're doing is that they're firing on all pistons and on all platforms. So, first of all, this is a very, very socially driven uh, concept. So, that's why the first place that people read about it was on Twitter. 
But now, you know what? You know, producers of radio shows such as at CHML, they're looking at it and thinking, okay, this is very pop culture. This is very top of mind. Let's talk about it. And everybody loves candy, and everybody, well, most everybody, and everybody relates to candy. So by creating an interesting out-of-the-box concept that has some sense of newsworthy value attached to it, and that's why you have the poll, that's why they have the change.org poll, just to add sort of that quantifiable uh, notion of just how many people really would love this idea, you manage to actually extend your news cycle much longer than you would ever think possible. I'm going to be big-headed here and say I have an even better idea than what this is suggesting. Okay. Halloween, Halloween in July. Canadian kids no longer have to come up with a costume and then wear a parka over top of it when they're running around in the freezing cold. Halloween in July. I'm in. I'm in. Listen, I remember when my daughter was celebrating Halloween and I'd be at work, I'd look at the clock and think, oh my gosh, it's 3.30, I need to go home. I need to either buy a costume or get ready or get the candy out. The kids are coming early. It is a big stress on parents, especially when it's in the middle of the workday. And you know, when you change the name from Halloween and move it to as they're suggesting, National Trick or Treat Day, and here they are. They have this all well thought out, right? So you put this notion out of changing Halloween, you wait for the backlash, which most certainly came, and then you already have an answer that's prepared. And they had one prepared. Like, how fast you come up with hashtag National Trick or Treat Day, and how fast you actually get Party City to get in on it. So this is a really well thought out strategy. So you move it to July, you now have longer days, it's a Saturday, so kids are going to go out and start trick-or-treating at noon and be able to go all the way till about 9 o'clock at night. You can cover 14 (laughs) square kilometers of houses at this point. And we're going to send them all to your house at the end, Scott. And and (laughs) Snickers, which wants to, and Snickers, which as you say, smartly has jumped on this, how much more candy would Snickers be and other companies be able to sell if it was a nine, rather than about an hour and a half or two hours, it's a nine-hour festival festival of candy door knocking. They'd be, they'd be rolling in it. Snickers should be calling you, honestly. This is a wasted opportunity. Uh, (laughs) Did you, did you ever, did you ever like find tricks and things? Did you ever work the system when you were a kid trick or treating? Oh, you mean like what, when I was 15 and still thought I could go trick or treating (laughs) and (laughs) showed up to get sort of the sloppy seconds of whatever was left at the neighbor's neighbor's door. Yeah, I always, I always like it when the 17 year old boys with the like starting mustaches show up and they, they, they what yeah, are you doing? Dr- pillowcases that they ripped off their parents' beds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they come to the door and go, trick or treat. What are you? <laughs> uh, I, I'm me. I'm being ironic. Yeah. I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm, be, I'm being ironic. See, uh, one year, two friends and I came up with what we thought was the brilliant idea. We came up, we create. we had three costumes, two, one that was on and two back at home. And we did our whole circuit as fast as we could, raced home, dumped the pillowcase, changed costumes and did all the houses again and did it a second time. So they, we thought they wouldn't know that it was us again. Of course, they were all neighbors. So like we were the idiots, but they still gave us candy. It still worked. I'm impressed at the idea and I'm impressed at your efficiency of running through the neighborhood in probably record time to get a double bag of candy. Alyssa, it was exhausting, but you're a kid and it's candy. What greater motivation? It's like giving, it's like having Halloween for adults, for crack addicts and saying at every house you go to, you're going to have a vial of crack. You want to see people run it's the same with kids and candy. It's the exact same thing. Well, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed reading about this story and I think a lot of people sort of hopped onto it because... 
quite frankly, the news hasn't been great as of late, and it's been downright depressing. So here you have a manufacturer who's sort of like hit a little pocket and provide a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of happiness in our day by this, you know, a story that essentially makes you smile, if not gives you a sugar fit. Well, and there's one other thing to it, and I may be completely wrong on this one. It's ju- it's an anecdotal observation of mine, but it does seem that Halloween has lost some of its luster in past years. I don't know what the reason is. It just seems like there's not only fewer kids doing it, but whether it's at schools that they don't want to have kids show up in their costumes or whatever, it, if you can do something to revive it in some way, because it's a fun, it, it's a really fun, I mean, as kids, it was a really fun day. It was a day you look forward to for a month, once oh, upon I a time. I agree, and I still remember going to school in my costume, and if you were a little kid, you got to go on a little parade yep. around the school yep. and show everybody your costume because it was so much fun. And then suddenly, you know, we started taking on religious overtones, and there were and and and. But listen, certain religions just don't believe in Halloween or dressing up or the whole notion of I don't know devil worship, I suppose. And you know, there was a lot of groups that complained about it and didn't really want their kids participating in it. So you know, you have a few kids who don't want to participate, and and it will. I mean, it could be valid reasons, and I'm not saying that they're not. But it will change the tenor and it will change the notion of what the holiday is actually all about. So people have been trying to, especially the school system, has been trying to water down the notion of Halloween and not necessarily call it Halloween and obviously not necessarily be able to bring candies in from the outside anymore. So, you know, having a sort of a non-pagan or national trick-or-treat day, it is an interesting concept, quite honestly. And maybe, and the other thing that I've really noticed, and again, it's anecdotal, but man, at least in my neighborhood, which once upon a time, there would never be a house with its lights out. There were a lot of people who had their lights off now. And maybe if you do it on a Saturday, like, again, I love the idea of keeping it October 31st. It's tradition. But maybe if you do it on a Saturday, maybe now you get a few more people who are willing to participate these days. Well, I'll say something that, you know, when my daughter was young, I used to live on a court and literally vans of kids used to be dropped off at one end of the court. They would do all the whole court, which is quite a few houses. And then that would be Halloween and people really got into it. And the street was alive and it was fun. And, and, and everybody had their lights on and everybody. I mean, I remember one year I gave away 400 pieces of candy. And then it got, you know, it, it became less and less and less. And now when you sort of confer with parents or somebody who's giving away ca- uh, candy on Halloween... The next day is how many kids came to your door? Oh, I had 20. Oh, Mm -hmm. I had like five, you know? So, you know, it has lost it. And people, and, and, you know, you talk, you joke about doing something during the day, but honestly, it's a great idea to do during something the day, especially for little kids. You get the greatest enjoyment out of Halloween. You know, they're up. They're not tired. They're not cranky yet. The whole thing makes a ton of sense to me. It does. And maybe the numbers are going down because the last couple of years we've been giving out homemade popcorn balls and brown bananas into the bag. I don't know if that's got something to do with it or not, but... Yeah, well, it certainly would to me. That would be (laughs) (laughs) We aren't, for the record. I don't want my house egged this Halloween or National Trick or Treat Day, whatever (laughs) we're going to call it. (laughs) Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, I would, you know, my idea, while mostly tongue-in-cheek, I don't think is crazy. If we're going to move Halloween anyway to the final Saturday in October, so it's no longer the designated day that's always been October 31st, 
I do think then if we're willing to move it a little, let's move it to July. Long days, summer days, nice and warm, parents are out, neighbors are out, everyone's happy, no one's cold. I'm telling you, if we're going to move it a little, if we're going to tweak it a little, let's just go all out and put it on the perfect spot for it. Start a new petition. Forget the Snickers one. We're going to start the Scott Radley Halloween trick-or-treat in July petition. See how that one goes. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.